Belarus is a country which sits in the very heart of Eastern Europe. Bordering Poland to the east and Russia to the west, it arguably forms one of the great historical crossroads between east and west. Yet, in recent history, it has received little attention. The country has been run by Alexander Lukashenko since 1994, in a political system often described in the West as the last dictatorship in Europe. In that time, Lukashenko has pursued closer relations with both the West and with Russia, which remains Belarus's main economic partner and military ally. Now, events in the country have been catapulted into the international spotlight. Protests emerged this summer challenging Lukashenko and grew to an unprecedented scale in the aftermath of the 9th of August election, which supposedly returned Lukashenko with a whopping, and for many inconceivable, 80% of the public vote. The harsh police crackdown which followed only seems to have emboldened protesters, and the crisis is sufficiently serious that it has shot up the international agenda. Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the East West Coffee Shop. This is a new podcast from the Younger Generation Leaders Network, which will address some of the most pressing challenges for Euro-Atlantic security and for societies in Euro-Atlantic states. My name is Ben Chalice. I'm a policy fellow at the ELN, and I'm delighted to have been asked to host the first ever episode of the East-West Coffee Shop. Today, we will be discussing the political crisis in Belarus. Joining me from Minsk is Yevgeny Preven, a member of the YGLN and founder and director of the Minsk Dialogue Council. Hi, Yevgeny. Hello, Ben. And Katya Glod, a senior fellow at the Centre for European Political Analysis, who has just returned to the UK from Belarus. Welcome back, Katya. Thank you. Hello, Ben. Um, Yevgeny, there have been anti-government protests in Belarus before, but even when these protests first emerged in the in the run-up to elections over the summer, there was a sense that this time was somehow different. Can you tell us what motivated the demonstrators and what set them apart from protests in the past? Well, I think this is one of those moments where only like six, seven months ago, hardly anyone predicted that the political crisis would get to this level where we will be talking about deep and unprecedented political confrontation, political crisis in Belarus. But at the same time, uh, if we'll look back at some of the trends that have been ongoing in Belarus and Belarusian society for quite a long time, we can now say that what we observe is sort of natural. I would say that for a couple of years, there's a growing feeling of disconnect between uh, the society at large and the government and personally, President Lukashenko was growing, at least on two levels. And the first has to do with the economy. And it's actually not a matter of a few years, but perhaps almost a decade. If you look at the World Bank data between uh, the years 2001-2010, then the average annual GDP growth amounted to 7.5%. And then beginning from 2011 and until 2019, that average annual growth level went down to about 1.5%. Clearly, when you look at the vast social uh, obligations and commitments that the Lukashenko government has prided itself in since day one of Lukashenko presidency, uh, with these drop in economic growth, the government simply could not allow to provide for all those social benefits. And what it meant was that a lot of people started turning to this idea that Lukashenko was no longer able to uh, deliver on his 
promises. And if you look at some uh, public opinion polls, actually, uh, the last really reliable public opinion agency was closed by the government in 2016. Uh, but if you look at those uh, studies they did back in 2015, 2016, so you can already see some signs of a, an emerging problem. Like more than 50% would say that uh, they did not really value the stability that uh, Lukashenko spoke about, and they thought the stability was more about stagnation, and they wanted some new ideas. Uh, and most probably since 2016, the situation has aggravated because the government made quite a lot of decisions which basically uh, angered a lot of people. For example, they uh, raised the retirement age by three years, which is a big deal for a lot of people in the country. Then they also came up with this strange idea of what it was called the parasite tax, which you know made a lot of people in the country angry because you, you, it's really difficult to explain to people in the 21st century that they need to pay some kind of tax because they you know, are unemployed and mostly not because they choose to be unemployed. So th this is the economic dimension of the situation. And then I think there is another one which is more mental, if you will. When you have someone in power for a quarter of a century, with every new day, chances grow higher and higher that this person will, will get disconnected from, from the rest of, of society. And I think it had to do with a lot of factors, including uh, the people in Lukashenko's immediate circle who, from my own observation sometimes, were not professional enough and who served as gatekeepers. And when you have unprofessional gatekeepers, you normally arrive at a situation when the decision maker you know, is deprived of some critical information. But it's also Lukashenko himself, because you know, when you govern a country and any decision you make is then uh, turned into law, then it must affect you at some point. So I guess this kind of um, uh, combination has led to a situation where he started making more and more mistakes. And you know, the two final things I want to say here are the two big mistakes I think the government made over the last year. The first one was about the parliamentary election in November 2019, where instead of uh, turning the parliament into a place where some kind of discussions about the future of the country take place, it was, again, a ster sterile parliament, if I can put it this way. And that pre-programmed that the protest, if it occurs, would become a street protest rather than a political protest, which might even take place within the walls of parliament. And then the very final and you know, perhaps the crucial mistake which became a real trigger for this crisis was how the government handled the pandemic. And I would even argue it was not primarily about uh, the policies that were implemented or were not implemented, but the rhetoric which accompanied those policies. And what Lukashenko said and how he interpreted his decisions, how he sort of addressed the people in the context of COVID-19, I think it became a last drop for quite a lot of people in the country. Thanks, Evgeny. That sets the scene for us. Well, Katya, I know you've just uh, come back from a month in Minsk where you've been following the, the opposition movement and the protests uh, carefully. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what the who, who the opposition is, uh, what what drives them and, and what the kind of current state of play with the with the protests is from your perspective. 
Well, basically, um, the main opposition candidate in this presidential election was Mrs. Tikhanovskaya, um, who initially did not plan to stand at all, but she uh, decided to stand after her husband, a, a rather famous vlogger, um, Sergei um, Tikhanovsky, sometimes also called uh, Belarusian Navalny, uh, was imprisoned. And she decided to stand uh, to stand instead of him. Um, the uh, other two campaign headquarters of an ex-banker, uh, Barbarica, who was also imprisoned on dubious charges of corruption and uh, the campaign headquarters of uh, Mr. Tsipkala, a former diplomat and the head of an IT park, of the IT park in Minsk, who had to flee the country uh, facing uh, threats of arrest, uh, um, also joined Mrs. Tikhanovskaya and the three teams managed to run a very successful campaign. Their main election message was that um, um, we want new free elections uh, fair elections, and we want the release of all political prisoners. Um, uh, official, the official results of the election uh, were 80% for the um, uh, Alexander Lukashenko and about 10% for Mrs. Tikhanovsky. But no one really in society believed these figures. Uh, because there was, um, well, as Evgenia rightly said, I think there are no uh, really uh, public opinion polls in the country, so it was impossible really to give the to ascertain the um, exact support of Lukashenko. But from those informal polls and from other um, indicators, we saw that that support was really low, perhaps uh, um, at about 15, 20 percent at the most. So when the Central Election Commission came up with this figure of 80%, there was a very strong um, dissatisfaction uh, feeling within society in Belarus and a very strong feeling of anger of being cheated. And that's what started the uh, the, um, large uh, scale protest in Belarus. The first few days of the protest were met with excessive violence from uh, the side of the police, which then later uh, was also discovered was not just uh, violence on the streets, but it was um, inhumane um, treatment of those um, arrested. Around 7,000 were arrested at first uh, in uh, places of detention, which is now qualified as torture. Many people came out beaten. Um, Still some people are missing. And obviously, we also had several deaths. Uh, for death at the moment. So all that unleashed a uh, large-scale protest. We have seen for the first time protests not only in Minsk, but in other um, cities and towns across Belarus. We have seen protests um, in smaller towns. We have seen protests in the villages. Um, initial, there were Initially, there were even strikes at factories, uh, state-owned companies, which was um, always, you know, the bedrock of support for Lukashenko. So the protest went really very wide in the Belarusian society. Uh, there was an incredible um, degree of intimidation um, against the opposition. Mrs. Tikhanovska was forced to leave the country. She's currently in Vilnius. Um, 
other members of the opposition have also been harassed, uh, prosecuted, oppressed. Um, currently, um, um, there is the so-called Coordinating Council of the Opposition, and uh, all members of the presidium of this Coordinating Council, except for one, Mrs. Alexievich, uh, the, the Nobel Prize uh, Literature Laureate, have been either arrested or have been expelled from the country. And just yesterday, uh, we had the news about Mrs. Kolesnikova, who is the one of the uh, trio, this female trio, uh, who was being uh, um, expelled, or there was an attempt to expel her from the country, but she tore up her passport and she remains in the country. And this morning, we received the news that she's in one of Minsk prisons. Uh, the level of repression, however, uh, has been uh, um, unprecedented and it has touched not only the opposition, um, it has really touched society at large. We have seen uh, um, dismissals from hospitals of the leading uh, um, doctors in Minsk, for example, the head of the cardiology hospital was dismissed. We have seen dismissals of some chancellors of university. Uh, we have seen uh, um, high-level uh, um, attacks at the IT sector with several companies being targeted. Um, one of the companies, Pantadoc, for example, that has promised to help uh, to support those security services personnel who decide to quit the security services. Um, it has also been targeted. Uh, four or five people of this company have been arrested. Um, students are also protesting in Belarus and uh, the student demonstrations have been dispersed. Um, well, as far as the protests, the demonstrations are concerned, we have seen now um, several consecutive uh, um, Sundays when people took to the streets uh, in large numbers, uh, um, approximately about 100,000, 150,000 taken to the streets in Minsk and uh, um, several dozens, uh, thousands taken to the streets in other places across Belarus. Um, and then during the weekdays, we see also smaller level protests. We see so-called women's marches when women uh, march along the streets of Minsk protesting against the violence. As I mentioned, we are seeing also some uh, student strikes. And although the uh, national strike at factories has not really materialized so far, but uh, there are also strike committees being set up at various state-owned companies um, across Belarus um, at some other public institutions. Uh, so we are seeing a very strong uh, protest movement that is not dissipating and that seems to have um, acquired a momentum of its own, even though the uh, leaders of the opposition um, have been uh, harassed and arrested. What is it about the way this protest is being organised that, that, that means that it's able to carry on under these circumstances? And, and do you think it will do? 
Well, the protests are very um, self-organized. We're seeing a very clear grassroots level uh, efforts to um, um, self-organize. Um, largely, these protests are organized uh, through um, a multitude of telegram channels, set up local chats that people set up within their own neighborhoods. Sometimes it's just several streets. And um, people organize within the yards of their um, apartment blocks. They gather together in the evening. They put up uh, white and red white flags. They sing protest songs. And then they prepare for Sunday when they march together in a column representing their neighborhoods to the center of Minsk. Um, there is also, obviously, a very famous blogger, Nechte, who sits in Poland, and uh, he's a very uh, bright, young man who is 22 years old, but he's nonetheless taken quite an active, encouraging role in this protest. He gives a lot of motivation. He gives some structures to the protest. However, he's not perhaps the leading figure in this protest. As I said, the protests are very much self-organized. And uh, therefore, even though the leading leaders of the opposition have been uh, um, arrested or expelled from the country. The protest is going on its own. People self-organize within their local communities and they will continue to protest because none of the demands that the protests protesters have put forward, such as the resignation of Lukashenko, a new election and the release of the political prisoners have been met. Furthermore, we have seen more violence on the streets, particularly in the last few days when the riot police harassed um, women, uh, female protesters. We are also seeing what, what really scares, I think, people in Belarus. We are seeing all the security services wearing black clothes, uh, wearing masks on their faces, um, um, walking into the um, yards of the apartment blocks, trying to detain people. Now it's a very popular comparison that you can see um, uh, or hear from Belarusians is really comparing these unmarked vans and people wearing black clothes with the um, cars of the 1937 um, when the people were taken away um, under Stalin. And that, I think, really creates a lot of the psychological fear. And therefore, on the one hand, people are very fearful, but on the other hand, they understand that there is a complete law loneliness happening in the country. They don't understand who these gangs are, who these people are, why they're beating other people in the streets, why they're arresting everyone. And therefore, I think that motivates them to continue to protest. Um, I think I agree with uh, what Katya said about the emotions that all these actions by the police and other law enforcement agencies provoke in common people. But I think I, I, I have a slightly different reading of uh, the dynamic of this protest and uh, its prospects. I think that for a long time, this really unique grassroots nature of the protest has been a very strong feature of, of, of the protest movement. Because you know when you don't have a leader, the government is disoriented. It is used to this approach where it basically gets rid of uh, the leaders and then the protest goes down. And that happened many times before. But I think up to a certain moment, this is a str- the strength, the main strength of the protest. But then when that moment is reached, it becomes a problem. And I think uh, we saw it very clearly around 
the 14th, 15th of August, when after three or four days of police brutality, and then, you know, uh, the internet had been down, and then it started working again, and the whole country saw all those pictures of brutality, violence, atrocities at some, uh, in, in some places. And that gave an extraordinary momentum to the protests. And if the protests could capitalize on that at that particular moment, perhaps we would have already had a different country. But I think it was at that point that it failed to do so for a couple of reasons. Uh, But primarily, I think what played the key role was that famous or infamous, if you will, call by Lukashenko to Putin, where he basically appealed to uh, Russia for security assistance within all those agreements that exist bilaterally, but also in the multilateral framework within the Collective Security Treaty Organization. And what was important about that call and about Putin's reaction was not, you know, this possibility that Russia would invade or anything else, but the very clear political signal which Kremlin sent. And the signal was basically about backing Lukashenko, at least for the time being. That signal was important because the primary uh, addressee of that signal, in my opinion, was uh, the Belarusian government. If between August 14, 16, we saw some people leave and, uh, you know, basically in protest and uh, in response to what they saw happened on the streets of Minsk and other cities, but after Putin clearly indicated his sort of support and sympathies, uh, that process pretty much stopped. And that was, I think, crucial for, for the dynamic of, of the whole situation. And that also for uh, the national strike, which never actually happens. Again, around August 15, 16, there were signs that it might have become reality. But then after after Russian support, I think, uh, it never materialized. And uh, as a result, since the protests w- remained grassroots and it had no way of translating this grassroots, unprecedented grassroots energy into a political action aimed at forcing the incumbent to either agree to a new election or to step down. I think the momentum was lost. And in a way, uh, Lukashenko regained initiative. And what we've been observing uh, in the last several weeks was that uh, he's trying to reimpose some kind of agenda of his own. It's pretty much impossible to do because I agree the country has changed. And so the protest is too strong to just, you know, uh, deal with it with all those repressive measures. But at the same time, the protest is also lacking this link between grassroots and political leadership. But on the whole, given the scale of the of the demonstrations, Lukashenko's top leadership seems to be fairly solid. Is, is that the case, Yevgeny? And, and, and why do you think that is? Well, uh, as I said, I think that uh, the Russian position has played a key role in this. And indeed, uh, the top brass of the Belarusian government, including the Silovaki, uh, have stayed loyal to Lukashenko. Uh, I have a feeling that everyone is really tired of the situation, and I'm sure that most of the people uh, in the law enforcement agencies, perhaps, uh, except for a couple of fanatics who, who perhaps have enjoyed what they do, unfortunately, 
But all the rest, I mean, they don't want to see their country break up in this way and this crack between or inside the society to deepen. But, you know, they all have their own uh, agenda, uh, professional family agenda. And as we know from many other instances of either successful or unsuccessful revolutions, this is a very hard sort of dilemma or choice to be made by both top level officials, but also lower level officials. And after uh, they clearly saw that the government was not collapsing the way that a lot of people in the streets expected, because again, uh, in mid-August, there was kind of euphoria in the streets of Minsk and other towns and cities. I traveled a little bit uh, around Belarus to see uh, how things were unfolding in different parts of, of, of the country. And of course, Minsk is, is the absolute center of all this political activity. The situation in northeastern Belarus, where I went, or in southern Belarus, where I also visited, is slightly different. But even there, the level of protest is unprecedented. And that euphoria was very, very clearly uh, observable in those days. But after, after Lukashenko, as I said, sort of managed to regain initiative, uh, the process stopped. And I think everyone is now observing where all this is leading. And of course, if for some reason, at some point, the protest can regain its own initiative again, then you know we, we can still see the continuation of those uh, officials leaving their post. But for the time being, I think this has more or less stabilized. And one more thing I want to add uh, from what I understand, we, we, we have observed quite a few instances of uh, those officials stepping down, but I think uh, even more cases were kept non-public because uh, quite a lot of people might have stepped down without you know, making that public, without posting all those pictures. And of course, this is also a very serious challenge to the, to the government if it manages to stay. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly agree with Evgeny. Um, I think there are also a couple of other things uh, um, in play here. I think we have to really remember that uh, um, over his 26 years in power, Lukashenko has managed to build a very, uh, um, a very well, first of all, a, a very large, and then secondly, a very structured, hierarchical, vertical of power, um, which runs from the very top of the presidential administration down to the level of every small village. So basically, um, there is a very, very hierarchical and very uh, subordinate state apparatus that is overseen by the presidential administration at the very top. So it's really very hard for this very grassroots level of protest to break this wall. Uh, for example, even mayors or the heads of uh, local regions in Belarus are not elected. They are appointed by the presidential administration. So they have no accountability to the people. And um, that's one reason. And the second reason is obviously uh, the regime of Lukashenko is very personalistic. And um, everyone remembers the disappearances of the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. And um, there is a lot of this, uh, you know, personal safety risk uh, um, at play when uh, basically people have to risk uh, their personal safety, have to risk their health if they decide to step down. And I think there is this very clear understanding that Lukashenko will definitely uh, try to pursue those who step down, who step down. So they really have to have some 
structures in place, some protection, which is very hard logistically to execute on the ground. And I think that also plays an important role. And uh, But nonetheless, I think the strategy of the protesters is currently to try to erode this, um, this power base of those officials who, let's say, at the lower level or mid-level of the state apparatus, who are basically implementing the top orders, the orders from the top, uh, not because they believe in, in them, not because they believe in Lukashenko's uh, policy agenda, but more because they just want to reap their benefits today. And um, I think that's a very correct um, strategy of the protesters to erode the power base of this regime. And we'll have to see how it will develop. And let's now's a good time to move into the international dimension. And we, we've mentioned Russia a little bit, and, and we should come back to that because Russia clearly here is important. But but as you're talking about the opposition movement, I think it makes sense to talk about what the European response has been and, and the response from the United States as well. I mean, Katy, it, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, hasn't it? You, you've seen quite strong leadership from some of Belarus's closest neighbours uh, in, in terms of in terms of a fairly clear response from the rest of the European Union. A little bit more mixed. Merkel and Macron both have have tried to speak to Putin about this. Uh, what what's going on? Help us understand. Well, I think, well, first of all, we have to understand that um, uh, the West, the European Union and the US, they're in a very difficult position here. Having established some sort of dialogue with Lukashenko over the past five years, now they understand that all that has to be ruined. And still, you know, in order to help society, they have to leave some channel of communication, which leaves the European Union and the US with very limited leverage. At the moment, the European Union is thinking about uh, sanctions. We know that these will be targeted sanctions, targeting uh, uh, 17 individuals, not yet Lukashenko himself. And these sanctions will include a visa ban to the European Union and the freeze of their, on their assets. Um, that's the first step. I think after the uh, post-election violence and after realizing that Russia is interfering covertly in Belarusian affairs. I think the European Union and the US, who is now trying to play a bit more active role, uh, will be able to step up their pressure. And uh, I think that the sanctions will be expanded, will have more people on this list, potentially their family members. Up up until now, the European Union was really careful to uh, not to upset Russia, not to make it look as if the European Union is interfering in Belarus domestic affairs. But as Russia has already taken this very geopolitically, and we'll discuss this later, I think that European Union is left with no choice but to step up its pressure. 
Obviously, the neighbors are those countries which are mostly interested in helping democracy in Belarus. They have very direct security interest in that. And therefore, we have seen such a response from Lithuania and from Poland. Lithuania currently hosts uh, Tikhanovskaya and um, the uh, and Poland um, has given hostage to other members of the Belarusian opposition. They have also given quite, um, they've given some money. But obviously, as the Lithuanian, uh, for example, foreign minister Lenkevich said that he would have liked to see a harder response from the European Union, a more targeted uh, response, and uh, um, bigger comprehensive help to Belarusian society. Obviously, to achieve a consensus within the European Union on this would be difficult, but again, we'll have to see what will happen within the next few weeks. As I said, the level of repression has also accelerated recently, and that might trigger a further negative response from the European Union. But again, the the leverage that the West has is very limited. Yevgeny, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about what's happening uh, with Belarus's other neighbour. Lukashenko's uh, recent behaviour on the international stage seems to be very heavily directed towards uh, Moscow. Um, We've seen him, as you've mentioned already, request uh, security assistance from the Kremlin. Uh, he sent the Belarusian border uh, army to its western border, apparently in response to the threat of an invasion by NATO. Uh, he was on Russian television yesterday, is expected to travel to Moscow recently, uh, and the Russian prime minister was, has been in Minsk in, in recent days. Can you help us make sense of this? Uh, what is it Lukashenko uh, wants from Putin? Why does he believe he will help him? Uh, and, and do you think he's right? Well, these have been interesting times in Belarus-Russia relations. Um, Many people remember that in 2019, the two countries were stuck in very tough negotiations uh, concerning deepening their bilateral integration. And even a few weeks before uh, the election, Lukashenko would accuse Moscow basically directly of interfering, even though he never spoke about Putin's role in that. But he hinted to all sorts of uh, groups of interest in Moscow. And then there was this case with the Wagner Group, which was arrested. And then also Lukashenko did not wait for too long before going on the record and saying that, you know, the Russians were behind that. And then, of course, everything changed uh, 180 degrees. This is something which political science explains as the effect of authoritarian politics and foreign policy. And this is something I've written about a lot in previous years. When Lukashenko, uh, for the last decades, felt relatively safe domestically, and he didn't see any potential threats uh, coming from within the country. I think what he started doing in foreign policy was very much in line with what could generally be said to be the national interest of the country, which was about you know trying to expand its uh, room for geopolitical maneuvering, trying to hedge its bets, and basically diversifying both politically and economically its relations. Of course, if we analyze uh, Belarus' relation with the West in the last five, six years, not too many achievements were recorded there, and Katya just referred to that. And that's why uh, the EU's leverage in Belarus is still very, very limited. But at least we saw that progress. 
But once Lukashenko started feeling that, he was threatened by a very clear domestic uh, potential power that he was no longer safe domestically. He turned again to his authoritarian thinking, which is basically about just surviving uh, politically. And this is the trick which happened to him several times throughout his 26 years in power. And I think uh, people in Moscow know that very well. I remember a quote by the late Yevgeny Primakov, who was Russia's foreign minister and prime minister, who once put it like this, as long as we have Lukashenko in power in Minsk, we can be sure that Belarus would never turn away from Russia. And the reason for that is that everyone in Moscow knows that when Lukashenko becomes threatened domestically, he starts thinking about this power uh, and ways of preserving power, and then everything else becomes secondary. And of course, uh, what he does in this process is basically attacking his political opponents, which normally amounts to the violation of human rights and democracy, which is not acceptable to the West, but which is very <laughs> well acceptable for Russia. And this is exactly what we've observed now. So he basically turned back to Russia. He uh, referred to those commitments that exist in the security realm. And Russia was sort of happy to embrace him because Russia has its own reasons to be interested in keeping Lukashenko in power, at least for the time being. Uh, very briefly, those reasons are geopolitical, because as I said, they now clearly understand that in the next several years, Lukashenko would not be able to turn back to some kind of a constructive dialogue with the West. And that will allow them to regain their strategic uh, influence over Belarus. And then the second reason is what we might call philosophical or mental. I don't think that people in the Kremlin are ready to accept the fact that leaders on the post-Soviet space uh, can be overthrown by mass protests. Something like this happened in Armenia a few years ago, but they would rather see it as an exception rather than a rule. And that's why they are now behind Lukashenko. Uh, then the bigger question is whether they are going to uh, back him for the entirety of five years, which he claims to have after this election? And I think the, the answer is no. They will be watching. And uh, the privilege they have is that they've become the absolute kingmaker of this political crisis in Belarus, which means they are the only actor capable of influencing any further development. So from now on, I would say anything can happen in Belarus, but only if Russia supports that. And they have time to decide. So most probably what they are looking at, and this is exactly what Lukashenko looks at, and most probably more and more other people in society will be looking at, even the EU and the US will be interested, is this idea of the constitutional reform. So I think for both Lukashenko and Russia, the main aim is now to refocus the attention from this discussion about rerunning an election, about Lukashenko's legitimacy after August 9th to that idea of a constitutional reform. And as we know, a few days ago, Lukashenko already said that uh, he would be sort of considering this idea of uh, holding new presidential and perhaps parliamentary elections once uh, the amendments to the constitution have, have passed. This is a this is a Euro Atlantic podcast. Um, where are the Americans in this? Uh, and and if you were sat in the White House, what would you do? I would 
still go on with appointing the American ambassador because this is now uh, something on agenda and the Senate is about to make a decision on that. But I think while a lot of senators make this point that appointing the ambassador at this time will send a wrong signal to Lukashenko, I think they should also keep in mind that not appointing the ambassador will send a very wrong signal to Belarusian society because if the ambassador of the U.S. is not there, then the only way for Washington to deal with the situation is to talk primarily to Moscow. But I think they still need to talk to people in Belarus. Um, if I were the White House today, I think I would try to give more support to Belarusian society um, by even, you know, giving uh, direct, let's say, very pra- in very practical steps, you know, gaining, giving some uh, training in political expertise to the opposition, uh, giving some training in how to set up and run political parties and would send a very clear message of support to um, society in Belarus at large. And at the same time, I would definitely send a very strong signal uh, to Lukashenko and his regime that this is not the way to treat the people in Belarus and would encourage him through sanctions or similar actions to start a national dialogue. Katya, Yevgeny, thank you very much. Um, That is all we have time for, I think. It's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our discussion on Belarus today. Please stay tuned for our next episode, where we will hear from two women at different stages of their careers about the hurdles and opportunities they have faced in their careers on security policy. To make sure you don't miss out on this and other great content, you should follow the YGLN and ELN on Twitter. That is at YGLN tweets and at the ELN, or by liking the European Leadership Network on Facebook. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 